Well, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Would you pray with me? In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. O Christ our rock, we need living water this day. Please give it to us by your Spirit. Show us who you are and help us to follow after you. Amen. You can be seated. It's good to see you all, few the proud, the Labor Day weekend Christians here at Christ the King, Anglican Church. Um, has anybody seen in the news what's been going on at Burning Man? No? A, little, a few people? Okay. I wasn't planning to talk about this. I just saw it this morning. Uh, <laughs> uh, so for those who don't know, Burning Man is like this pagan festival that happens in some random desert every year. Um, it sounds awful in all sorts of ways, but apparently there's been some sort of you know, deluge in the desert such that this place that's usually basically waterless is now flooded and everybody is stuck in the mud and literally can't get out and they're running out of water and there's like reports of disease. It actually sounds kind of terrible and, and we should pray that everyone is saved in this situation, but there is a little bit of a like slightly delightful irony in it. But, but I bring it up because I was already thinking about people trapped in the desert and even though it's, it's, it's ironic, again, because it's rain that has trapped them there, but the main presenting problem is that everybody is running out of potable water because you only bring so much, and, and they're, they're unable to access the typical sources. And so there's these people trapped in a desert who need water. And I was already thinking about Israel. Um, I was thinking about Israel after the Exodus. And it, it's just a few weeks after the Exodus, and they've been wandering in a desert, and they start to grumble again. Previously, they were grumbling because they didn't have food to eat, and so God gives them manna, and now they're grumbling because they are thirsty. They have no water, and their thirst is making them quarrelsome, although that's probably the nice way to put it. They're so quarrelsome that they want to kill someone. They are, they are very angry. They threaten to stone Moses. They're raging against Moses and against Yahweh so fiercely that Moses is going to name the place where they are the place of testing and quarreling. And so Moses brings their complaint before Yahweh, before God, saying, God, I don't know what to do here. The people want to kill me. They hate you. This is not a good situation. And Yahweh, with his characteristic patience, provides for his people again, even though they rage against him. And so he tells Moses, take the staff by which you parted the Red Sea previously and go to the rock at Horeb. And Yahweh says, I'm going to stand before you there at the rock of Horeb, and what you need to do is you need to take that staff and you need to strike the rock. And so Moses obeys. He goes to the rock at Horeb. He smashes his staff down through probably the glory cloud of God's presence. So he smashes the staff down onto the rock at Horeb. The rock is struck, and then streams of living water flow to slake the thirst of the people. Now, many, 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 many years later, Paul is writing to the church at Corinth, and he's talking about what happened there. And he says this, he says, I don't want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers, that is those who were in the desert, Israel after the Exodus, they were all under the cloud, and they all passed through the sea, and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, and all of our fathers ate the same spiritual food and drank the same spiritual drink. In other words, Paul is saying, God acts towards his people in remarkably consistent 
ways. What God did back then to provide for his people and what God is doing now for you all in Corinth and for us here in Alabama, it's the same thing. It's the same spiritual food, the same spiritual drink. How is that possible, though, separated by so much time? It's because God's saving acts towards man are always accomplished by the Son of God. God's saving act towards man is always done by the Son of God. Paul concludes this little passage by saying, Our fathers in the desert, who drank the same spiritual drink, ate the same spiritual food, they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. The rock was Christ. The rock that was struck from which the spiritual drink came was Christ. Now, I know I'm kind of jumping around here from from the the desert to Paul, and now to last week in our gospel passage, we heard Simon confess that Jesus was the Christ. He's the Messiah. He's the royal son of David. He's the son of the living God. He is the savior of the world, and he's there. It's Jesus, and Jesus affirms this revelation, and he blesses Simon with his new name, and we talked about this last week if you were here. What's Simon's new name? Peter, right? The rock. He's rocky now, And, and Christ is saying, I'm the rock, now you're the rock. I'm the rock who makes rocks, and I am making a rocky structure. I'm making a structure that is solid and is stable. In fact, it's the only solid and the only stable structure in this whole chaotic world, this world of chaos and calamity and entropy and of death, and it's the one structure, the one rock to which we can cling, and not only cling but belong, That Christ, the chief cornerstone, is actually building his church, this solid structure in a chaotic world, and he's building it on the foundation of the apostles, and he's making everyone who believes into stones, living stones that form this temple people of God, and it's it's so solid, it's so unshakable that even the gates of death, the gates of hell cannot prevail against this structure, cannot undermine it, cannot shake it. It's the kind of promise we said last week that you should rest your life on and build your life on. But it's also a promise that's prone to misunderstanding, as our gospel passage for this morning makes clear. So the rock is Christ, and that rock is building a a solid structure on the solid foundation of the apostles, and he's making you into solid and living stones to make up his temple, and yet... This utterly solid and stable rock doesn't work the way that we think rocks work, which sounds kind of weird. Like, how complicated is a rock? It's a rock. It's like the most basic technology thing there is in the world. It's a rock. Not too much complicated about it. And yet, there's something weird about this rock. It's a stable rock. It's a solid rock. And yet, this rock must be struck. This rock has to be struck and split open. It's a solid rock that has to be broken if rivers of living water are going to flow forth from it. And that may sound counterintuitive. It may sound mutually exclusive. How can a rock be stable and solid and yet be struck and split open? Those things don't go together. And if you're having trouble with that concept, you're in good company. Bad company, I guess. It's Peter and Satan are your company, is what I'm trying to say. Um, So Jesus the Messiah... The royal king has said, I'm building my church, one solid foundation. And immediately after he says this, he says, I'm going to suffer and die. From that time on, 
our gospel passage begins. Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things. From the elders and the chief priests and the scribes, he has to be killed and on the third day be raised. This is a turning point in Jesus' ministry. Up to this point, when Peter says, you're the Christ, you're the son of the living God, Jesus has been proving that he is the promised Messiah. And you think his name would have been a clue? His name literally means God saves, but I guess there were a lot of Joshua's and Jesus is running around, so we'll cut the people some slack. But, but since Jesus first hung up his rabbinic shingle, okay, since he first started to haunt the docks and walk around and interrupt tax collectors and tell random people, hey, follow me, Jesus has been patiently proving beyond a reasonable doubt that he is the promised Messiah, that he's the one who gives sight to the blind and makes the lame to walk and sets the captives free. He is the one who has come to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, and not only to proclaim it, but to affect it, to make it happen. He is, in a word, the Christ. And now that point in his ministry has kind of reached its fulfillment. He's been proving he's the Christ, and now thanks to the Father who loves to brag on his son, people are starting to realize, First Peter, this is the Christ. The problem is, People don't know what a Christ is. They think they know, but they don't know. And so his mission now is to reveal what a Christ is, what a Messiah is. You can remember verse 20, this grand revelation that Jesus is the Christ. The point of his ministry so far, he actually doesn't want people to hear that. Verse 20 says, he strictly charged the disciples not to tell anyone that he's the Christ. In the Gospel of Mark, Jesus is always doing this. He's always strictly charging people to just shut up about him. They realize, like, whoa, you're, you're the Son of God. And he's like, great, don't tell anyone. Keep it to yourself. Why is he doing that? It's because a message like, the Christ has arrived, really gets the people going. People love to hear that message because all of their fantasies start getting fulfilled, they think, right? Um, they start seeing these visions of what, what's going to happen next. The, the Roman tables are going to be turned, and victory is going to be snatched from the jaws of defeat, and life is just going to be so much better when we're finally on top because the Christ has come. People get excited about the Christ having come. They think they know what a Christ is, and they think that the Christ means victory and triumph and power and the spoils that come along with those things. But Christ's new mission is to reveal not only that he has come, but that the Christ must suffer and die. And there's crickets when that's the message. That doesn't sound right to us at all. You can't tell me, Jesus, that you're going to build the one solid structure that, that will stand in a world of chaos and calamity and entropy and death. You can't tell me that's what you're doing and then immediately tell me that you also have to die. You can hear how those things are mutually exclusive, right, Jesus? So that's what Peter, sweet, sweet Peter, quick-tongued Peter, who is still wearing his new name like a merit badge, He's ready to teach this Christ a thing or two about what it means to be a Christ. Peter thinks, whoa, 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 whoa there, Jesus. You may be the Messiah, and look, I'm on the record saying you are, but I think you've got a few things to learn about this whole Messiahship thing. Peter took Jesus aside, began to rebuke him, saying, far be it from you, Lord. This will never happen to you, this suffering and this death. And if you have a Bible open in front of you, you'll see a little footnote there, and it'll tell you that what Peter literally says is, God is merciful to you, Lord. 
God's merciful to you. This will never happen to you. Sweet Peter thinks he's teaching Jesus about the nature of the Father. If you're the Christ, Jesus, if you're the Messiah, if you're beloved of the Father, don't you know that God's mercy is going to protect you from all the bad things? If you're the Christ, why are you thinking that he's not going to do that? And perhaps you have heard similarly well-intentioned words at some point in a moment of trial or pain, perhaps. It all works out. You don't need to be sad. God won't let anything bad happen to you. What is Jesus' response to this well-intentioned advice? He absolutely recoils. He turns his back on Peter. He can't even look at him as he corrects him. Get behind me, Satan. And he's literally turning his back on Peter, who is now Satan. And if that sounds a little bit harsh, remember that Peter sounds almost exactly like Satan does earlier in this gospel when Satan is tempting Jesus. Satan says to Jesus, if you are the Son of God, if the Father really loves you, I dare you to put yourself in harm's way. Cast yourself down from the top of this temple. I guarantee angels are going to surround you. You won't even strike your foot against a stone. That's how Satan tempts Jesus, and you can hear the echo of Peter. God is merciful. God is loving. He's not going to let anything bad happen to you. And both Peter and Satan have a valid point. Probably not a great thing to say Satan has a valid point in a pulpit, but they have a valid point. God is merciful. God is loving. The Father very much does love the Son, and yet they've taken that valid point, that true thing, and they've misinterpreted it, misapplied it. They don't know what they're saying, and so Jesus treats it like the lie that it is. The Christ doesn't need to suffer is a satanic falsehood. God's favor means freedom from suffering is a lie from the pit of hell. Jesus knows He has known from the beginning and he knows right now as he's turning his face toward Jerusalem that he has come as the Messiah precisely to suffer and to die. This only begotten son of the Father who is very much beloved of the Father has humbled himself to take on human nature, to take the form of a slave. This Jesus is the suffering servant of Isaiah 53, the one who comes to bear our transgressions, to to put himself low, and not only low, but to die for our sake. So Peter and Satan are right. God is love. God is merciful, and yet they are absolutely wrong to think that love and mercy exclude suffering. Jesus, who is the image of the invisible God, reveals to us precisely that divine love and divine mercy, they don't reject suffering and death. They don't turn their face from suffering and death. Divine love and mercy rush in where there is pain and suffering and death to bear it for the sake of the beloved. For all of human history, we have wanted a free lunch. We've wanted something for nothing. We've wanted gain without the pain. And this has always been and is now and ever will be a lie Because our sin and the sin of all humanity have made a ruin of this world. Your sin and the sins of many have been fractaling out through all of history such that wretchedness 
and chaos and calamity and death. They just absolutely drench this world that was intended for order and beauty and harmony and life. And that unbearable weight of sin and death and wretchedness, it cannot just be ignored. You can't just say it doesn't actually exist. You can't just sweep it under a rug because someone always suffers the consequence of a sin. Every sin has a consequence that someone will suffer. And Jesus the Christ came to take upon himself the final consequence of every sin. And this is God's love. And this is God's mercy. And this is God's glory that he rushes in where suffering and pain and death reside. And he rushes in not to say, hey, there's nothing to see here. Hey, don't worry about it. We've got some better things coming. No, he rushes in to take them upon himself to drink down the cup of calamity to its dregs. See, we hear, and Israel heard Christ, and they think glory. Christ means glory, but when the actual Christ comes, he thinks cross. We think that glory is freedom from suffering and pain and death, but in Christ Jesus we see that God's glory is his freedom to take on suffering and pain and death for the sake of his beloved creation. The satanic lie is that you can have glory without the cross. And Jesus rebukes this lie without reserve. It is only the cross that brings glory. It is only the struck rock, the rock that is struck, that can bring forth streams of living water. And I don't want to put too fine a point on it right here, but you know when Jesus is crucified and finally gives up his spirit, a Roman soldier takes a spear and strikes him in the side, strikes Christ our rock. And what comes out? Blood and water. It's only the struck rock that can pour forth streams of living water. I want to pause here for just a second and think together about Peter. It was basically moments ago that Peter had this shining moment of confession and blessing. Peter was thinking the very thoughts of God. Blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. So Simon's given the title by Jesus. You're Peter. You're Rocky. You are the rock on which I will build my church. Next to Jesus, Peter is the sure foundation stone of this whole church. And yet here, moments later, moments after he's made the rock that is a foundation of the church, here is Rocky, whose name now takes on a second meaning. Jesus says to him after he, you know, is stupid, Peter, get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me. And the word there for hindrance literally means stumbling block. Get behind me, rock. You are a stumbling block to me. You hear the irony. This is the rock on whom Christ is going to build his church, and already he is a stumbling block. And here I think we have both an admonition and an encouragement for every one of us, everyone who is a Christian. First, the admonition. Just because God uses you powerfully to proclaim his gospel, or just because he gives you the strength to take some leap of faith, and praise God when, and if, when he does, just because that happens from time to time, it does not immediately give you license to then speak for God apart from his authority. And I'm saying this to myself first and foremost because we are far too easily inclined, I am and you are, far too easily inclined to mistake the thinking of man for the thoughts of God. We can hear the very word of God to us, and by the time that it's 
processed through our ears and comes through our brain and then is coming out of our lips, the truth of God somehow becomes a lie. That's possible. It happens all the time. People think they're speaking for God, but they're just speaking their own thoughts. They're speaking the wisdom of man, which is a lie and is folly. See, like Satan, like Peter, we can take a truth, like God is merciful and God is loving, and we can so warp that truth that in the way we say it, we actually encourage people in sin, the sin that's killing them. We can take a truth like God is merciful and actually preach an anti-gospel. Or kind of take the opposite. We can take a truth like God is the righteous judge of all things. And by the time we're saying it, we so burden someone's conscience that they can't even hear the gospel of grace. So if you stand up to speak the words of God, and you are supposed to speak the words of God in your life, be wary, be careful that you do not substitute the thoughts of man, lest you too become a stumbling block. And yet, here's the encouragement. When you have failed as a disciple of Jesus, when you have said the wrong thing, even when you have denied Jesus in a moment of confession, you remain in the company of even the first apostle. Peter is going to explicitly deny Jesus, as you well know, three times as he's headed to his crucifixion. And still, the one who denied Jesus explicitly three times At his moment of deepest need, Jesus forgives that Peter. Not only forgives him, but sets him over his sheep. Feed my sheep, feed my sheep, feed my sheep. Simon, do you love me? God accomplishes his purposes in his church precisely with blockheads like Peter and like you and like me who are solid rocks one moment and stumbling blocks the next. When you begin to speak the thoughts of man as if they're the thoughts of God, you should expect and receive a swift rebuke, but that rebuke is intended to bring you back into fellowship, back into discipleship, to correct the course of the mission that God has given you. Now, having rebuked Peter for thinking that glory can come without the cross, Jesus then turns to his disciples, he turns to us, and he clarifies for them exactly what's coming. If they keep following him, Jesus is not cagey with his disciples. He's not trying to bait and switch you by saying, hey, here's some glory. You want some glory? Like we're little dogs, like we got a glory. Here's the treat. And then it's like suffering. Gotcha. That's not what Jesus does. He doesn't bait and switch you. He's very clear up front with what is going to be demanded of his disciples. It's cards on the table. Chips are all in. If anyone would come after me, Jesus says, let him deny himself, take up his cross, And follow me. Whoever would save his life is going to lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. I'm going to be honest. There are like between 15 and 500 sermons to preach from this text. And you deserve all of them at some point. You need to hear about Christian self-denial. And about taking up your cross. And about the life saved and the life lost. But I need to hone in this morning just on one point. Jesus prophesies about his suffering and his death, and then he says, follow me. Follow me. Don't miss this. Jesus came to make disciples. And by that I mean Jesus didn't come to to suffer and die and be resurrected just so he could like balance out some holy equation that exists out there. 
Sin times death equals holiness divided by X, and Jesus comes to solve for X, or something like that. He doesn't come, Jesus doesn't come in the flesh to abstractly set abstract things into an abstract order. He came to make disciples. He came to save actual people and forgive actual people so that they are then freed to actually follow him in their actual lives. To put it bluntly, Jesus didn't come just to die for sin. He came to die for your sin and then to make you into one of his disciples, to perfect you, to make you whole. And he does this, yes, amen, first by taking upon your nature and by bearing the consequences of your sin, by bearing God's wrath upon sinners, by suffering your death. He does die for your sins, but even that is just the first movement in this longer symphony of recreation. Jesus reconciles you to the Father, hallelujah, so that you might then live as a child of God. He gives you new life by His Spirit so that you might then live in living fellowship with the Father and the Son and the church that He is building. He's making you into a disciple. He's making you into a Christian. And you know that Christian means little Christ. What the Christ does, the Christian will do. If the Christ suffers then, that's essential to what it is to be a Christ, the Christian will suffer too. If the Christ dies, the Christian will die too. And not in the same way, your death is not going to atone for your sins, right? Christ has done something unique, and yet the pattern of his life, the pattern of the Christ, is the path of the cross. And if Christ walks the path of the cross, we too, as Christians, as little Christ, as his disciples, are going to walk the path of the cross. And so he means it when he says that his disciples must follow him. We follow him into servanthood. We follow him into suffering. We follow him into death. Christians do not have to. In fact, we cannot deny for a second that suffering and evil and sin and death are real things that we continue to confront and mourn over and rage against. Following Jesus does not mean we get to step out of the world of chaos and calamity and entropy and death. It means we step deeper into it. And it's not that we're going to gain this world, Jesus says. It's not that we we now get to collect all of the the nice prizes and shiny baubles of the world. No, we, we follow Christ into the world so that we too can die for the world. So that we can give up our lives for the service of the Christ who died for us and walk before him all of our days. If the rock is struck, we living stones will also be struck. But because we're following Jesus, that's not bad news. Though it sounds a little bit like bad news. It's actually life itself. When Jesus says, follow me, he's not saying, hey, watch this, and then you try it. See what you can do. Death and resurrection is not a cool skateboard trick, right? Jesus does not ask you to do what he has not already provided for you abundantly. The Jesus who says to you, deny yourself, is the same Jesus who gave himself up for his friends. The Jesus who says, take up your cross, is the same Jesus who has already suffered the rejection and scorn of all humanity and who has died your death 
And the Jesus who says, follow me into suffering and death, follow me along the trail that is marked by my dragging cross, is the same Jesus who says, behold, I am with you always. Following Jesus is walking with Jesus. Jesus walking with you. He goes behind you and before you. He goes at your right and your left hand. He is the road that you trod and the destination toward which you plod. That doesn't mean it's not going to hurt. It doesn't mean that the life of Christian discipleship is going to be free from suffering. He has made that very, very clear. It is when you forgive others their bitter sins against you that you're following Jesus. It is when you mourn deeply without succumbing to despair that you are following Jesus. It's when you put to death your sinful desires and give them no quarter that you are following Jesus. It's when you give up your time and you give up your energy and you give up your possessions and you give up your very life for the sake of the lost and the hurting. It's then that you are following Jesus. Following Jesus means you give your whole life over to him. That you become, in Paul's wonderful phrase, a living sacrifice. And you will be struck when you become a living sacrifice. But when you are struck by the grace of God, his living water will flow even through you to a lost and dying world. For behold, he is with you always. Christ our rock was struck and he was split His side was pierced, and now even in our suffering and our mourning and our pain, as we limp along behind him, he is ready to slake your thirst with the living water of his presence. Amen.